Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the world of pain into which all new planning information is deposited, and extract the key things you need to know. We'll explain what planners need to know about the government's new Environmental Improvement Plan, which was published last week. A judge has ruled that a planning inspector erred in law in his decision to refuse an application to alter a planning permission for a new house and found that planning guidance on the issue is confusing. We'll explain what his concerns were. And we'll find out how Housing Secretary Michael Gove is planning to force developers to fix unsafe buildings by denying them the ability to implement planning permissions. We'll also round up some of the other big news stories of the past fortnight. By the end of the show, you should be more than ready for any awkward lift meetings with the boss. So, time to face the music. Ready to go in? I guess so. Well, here we are again in room 106. Yes, and this week we have some help at hand. Here's our senior reporter, Samantha Eckford, and our online editor, Toby Porter. Hello. Hello. Hello both. Uh, Very glad to have you here. Sam, you've been um, in the corner of room 106 where they put the environmental improvement plan. Yes, yes, I have. Many a happy hour has been spent there, I imagine. So maybe a little question to start off with. What's the purpose of the plan? So the plan's purpose is to review the government's 25-year environment plan, which was published in 2018. The 2021 Environment Act required that the plan be reviewed every five years. This is the first review of that plan. Okay. And uh, the big question, how is it going to change the the planning system or, or what do planners need to know about it? So firstly, sustainable drainage systems will become mandatory in all new developments from 2024. According to the plan, SUDs, which include a range of eco-friendly measures designed to reduce the risk of flooding, will be introduced next year, subject to consultation. The plan also introduces a target that aims to ensure that everyone lives within 15 minutes of blue or green space. The plan includes a commitment to work across government to deliver this target. A new green infrastructure framework will track the government's progress towards this goal, and will more generally help authorities to deliver green and blue infrastructure, the plan states. The framework, published by Natural England, promises to help local planning authorities and planning developers to create or improve green and blue infrastructure, particularly where provision is poorest. The next proposed change is to local nature recovery strategies, which are spatial documents introduced by the Environment Act that are intended to map the most valuable existing nature habitats within the area they cover, as well as showing opportunities for recovering and enhancing nature. The plan states that secondary legislation and statutory guidance setting out the process and contents of the strategies will be brought forward ahead of a national rollout in April, while guidance will be provided to local authorities outlining how to incorporate the strategies into their local plans. It also states that the strategies will be given weight and meaning across a range of government policies and that they will be designed to join up to form what is described as a coherent network of shared plans designed to influence the environmental aspects of future strategic documents. Meanwhile, air quality is set to become a key consideration in the planning process, although this will be balanced with the need to continue to build homes and infrastructure the country needs. The plan also provides an indication of what new environment outcome reports will have to cover. EORs, which form part of the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, are designed to replace the Environmental Impact Assessments, which assess the environmental effect of a project during the planning application progress. The plan states that EORs will be used as a tool to identify and minimise the impact of development on air quality and will be required to be aligned to the environmental improvement plan. 
The plan also promises a new environmental land use framework to be published in 2023, which will set out how we will balance multiple demands on our land, including climate mitigation and adaptation. It also promises a consultation on new protections in the planning system for long-established woodlands, which have been present since at least 1893. While ancient woodlands will also be better protected, as the plan introduces a new duty on local planning authorities to consult with the Secretary of State before granting permission for any development proposal that would affect what it calls ancient woodland. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff that is specifically related to planning and, and which people are, you know, who deal with various different parts of the planning system are going to need to get their head around. There's also some other stuff that's sort of related to planning, I think. Yes, so the government has reaffirmed its commitment to introduce biodiversity net gain in November this year and also has committed to provide more funding to support the transition to the system, which will require developers to provide a 10% net gain for biodiversity once introduced. Okay, and I guess with some of the noise around about is biodiversity net gain an unnecessary burden on business at a difficult time, it's quite interesting to see them making that commitment. Yeah, and they say that the level of support will be confirmed shortly. And then there are a couple of things about nutrient neutrality as well, I believe. Yes. So the plan states that £100,000 of funding will be made available to support authorities with the impact of nutrient neutrality advice. The funding will pay for new catchment officers in each area, nutrient advisors in the planning advisory service and additional capacity in natural England. It also includes a commitment from the government to rapidly increase the supply of mitigation credits, which it says will speed up planning permissions and enable the building of new homes. So these are the credits you can buy, which are basically allow you to pollute locally because you're compensating elsewhere with some kind of mitigation scheme. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And then on top of that, there was also the environmental principles policy statement. So what's that about very briefly? Yeah. So this is a policy paper setting out the government's approach to environmental protection by introducing five key principles, which policymakers from across government, including those developing national planning policies, will have to adhere to. So what new duty does it put on ministers when they're making planning policy? So the first principle called integration requires that ministers consider an overarching requirement to embed environmental protection into policymaking across government. The prevention principle and the rectification at source principle are designed to prevent and mitigate environmental damage, while a precautionary principle helps policymakers deal with risks which may not be precisely calculable in advance, the document says. The final principle called polluter pays means that where possible, the costs of pollution should be borne by those causing it rather than the person who suffers the effect of resulting environmental damage or the wider community, document states. Ultimately, a a new set of environmental constraints on planning policymaking. Exactly that. Thank you very much for that, Sam. And uh, of course, people can read more about that on planningresource.co.uk. John, you've been looking at this ruling by a judge that a planning inspector erred in law in his decision to refuse an application to alter a planning permission for a new house, and maybe more significantly, uh, his finding that planning guidance on the issue is confusing. Can you just tell us a bit more about the details of the case and why the inspector came to the conclusion that he did? Yes. So going back to the start, in 2007, planning permission was granted to build a single house on a coastal plot in the nicely named village of Port Wrinkle in Cornwall. Then in autumn 2020, Cornwall Council approved an application from the claimant in the case, Mikhail Armstrong, to vary this permission via Section 96A of the Town and Country Planning Act 1990. And he did this to allow a new design of the house, which was described in court as boldly modernist and irregularly shaped. 
Several months later, he applied to Cornwall Council to vary the building's design again, this time under Section 73 of the Town and Country Planning Act. This time his proposal was for a more simple, rectilinear, alpine lodge-style design. And it's this Section 73 application that was the subject of the court case. The council refused this Section 73 application because it said the proposal completely altered the nature of the development and went beyond the scope of what's allowed under Section 73. Armstrong appealed against the decision, but the planning inspector dismissed this appeal and he agreed that a fresh planning application was required. In his decision, the inspector found that the proposal went beyond the kind of what he called minor material amendments to an existing permission that's allowed under Section 73. He said that the proposal involved a wholesale redesign of the house so that it would be of a substantially different nature to that already approved. Okay, and what did the judge have to say about the inspector's decision? Well, the judge upheld Armstrong's challenge to the decision, Deputy Judge James Strachan KC, and he ruled that the inspector had made an error in law. There was, he said, nothing in the wording of Section 73 that restricts an application to vary or remove a condition to a minor material amendments. The inspector had concluded that there was a fundamental difference in the proposed aesthetics of the chalet when compared to the approved design, but the judge noted that there was no fundamental conflict with the original consent in 2007, the operative part of which simply allowed construction of a single dwelling. He said the change in the building's design did not require any alterations to the description of the permission for construction of one dwelling. Okay, and he had wider concerns, not just about what the inspector had decided, but also about the guidance on the matter. Yes, so he referred to the government's planning practice guidance and he noted that it implies only non-material or minor material amendments can be made to an existing planning permission. He said the PPG does not specifically claim that Section 73 is limited in this way, but it does make a reference to allowing variation of planning conditions, including seeking to make minor material amendments. And the judge said the wording of the guidance was liable to confuse as evidenced by the inspector's decision. And he said it's unsurprising that any reader of the PPG might infer that the reference to minor material amendment is advice that is only minor material amendments that fall within the scope of Section 73. So the judge concluded that this terminology in the PPG introduces an impermissible gloss on the scope of Section 73, which has the propensity to misdirect the reader, as it did the inspector in this case. So our readers will probably remember there have been a number of significant court rulings in recent years dealing with the scope of applicants to alter planning permissions, including the Supreme Court hillside ruling last year and the Court of Appeal Finney ruling in 2019. So this looks like another one for planning lawyers to get familiar with. Thank you very much for that, John. Uh, and we'll come back to you later to get your roundup of some of the other key news stories of the week. OK, and uh, Toby, you've been looking at another story, which is um, about the Housing Secretary, Michael Gove, asking developers to sign a contract with a degree of sort of menaces attached. Can you explain a little bit about what this contract is that Gove wants the developers to sign? Yes, yeah, so he's given them six weeks to agree to fix unsafe buildings, for example, those with flammable cladding, or face a ban on implementing planning permissions for any new ones. Okay, and um, what is he going to prevent them from doing in planning terms if they don't sign this contract? Well, they've got five weeks now, and 
what he says is if they don't sign, then they cannot implement planning permissions that they have. At one stage, there was some ambiguity over that because of a report in the Times last weekend, which implied they might not even be able to get obtain planning permission. But um, after querying the Department of Leveling Up several times, we've established that it's just implementing the planning permissions that they might already have. And is it clear how they're going to prevent these permissions from being implemented? Not absolutely clear. There's one track, which is the Responsible Actor Scheme that Gove is going to implement, which entails developers being part of a scheme that ensures they can build out their planning permissions. But equally, there's that's, that's the carrot, if you like. The stick is not being able to implement those permissions at all. And he's quite strongly worded on this. He said in the Commons, anyone who fails to sign the contract will be prohibited from carrying out future development and from receiving building control sign-offs for building buildings under construction. And he said, and this is the kicker, if you're a developer, if you fail to sign this contract, you will have to find another line of work. Right, okay, so uh, so uh, strongly worded stuff, but we're still slightly in the dark about exactly what mechanism he's going to use to prevent them sort of uh, using these permissions which they've been granted. Exactly. The Department of Leveling Up has confirmed that we'll use powers in the Building Safety Act, sections 126, 129, to set up the Responsible Actor Scheme. Commencement regulations to implement the powers were passed in September, uh, but full implementation will only occur, and this is their quote, once the further regulations have been brought forward this spring. A letter from the Department of Leveling Up Director General for Safer and Greener Buildings, Richard Goodman, said in a letter that the spring regulations will set out the operational details of the scheme. And again, we asked luck what exactly they might mean by that. And it doesn't shed a huge amount of light, but I will read to you what their response is. The Building Safety Act sets out that a prohibition under these regulations can apply despite planning permission having been granted, though it also allows for the regulations to contain exceptions. Furthermore, the Act sets out that regulations may apply with or without modifications. Any provision of Part 7 the Town and Country Planning Act 1990 on enforcement. And lastly, DLUC says, our proposed regulations will be published in due course. In other words, at the moment, wait and see. Okay, so they've got to do a bit more legislating before they can actually uh, make this make this happen. Exactly. So as far as we know, how, how many house builders have signed the contract so far? Well, so there were lots of them who signed the pledge in the summer and Gove at the time implied that he was going to play a softly, softly approach but this new contract is him getting a little firmer. So far, the signatories include Barrett and Persimmon and Vestry, signed in the latter part of last week. But if Gove was hoping there'd be a snowballing effect and more would come online, that hasn't materialised. So we'll have to wait and see as the deadline approaches on March 13th to see if there's a, an avalanche of late applicants to make sure that Gove can deliver on the policy that he wants to. Very interesting. Well, thank you very much, Toby. Thank you. So uh, now we need to go back to John, who I think is going to round up some of the other key news stories of the past uh, seven days. 
Yes. Hello, Richard. So my first big story from the past week is news that two of the law firms with the UK's biggest planning teams have announced they've called off talks over a merger. So in October, global law firm Womble Bond Dickinson and UK company BDB Pittmans said that they were in early discussions around a potential merger, but last week they announced that was now not happening. My second story is news of a walkout by some staff at the Planning Inspectorate last Wednesday. So Planning Inspectorate staff who are members of the Civil Service Union PCS staged a 24-hour walkout last Wednesday in a dispute over pay and PIN said it expected some impact on its services as a result. Next, we've got the Planning Minister, Lucy Fraser, approving plans for a new mosque in the north of England after concluding that the scheme's high-quality design should outweigh the harm caused to a nearby listed building. She also attached significant weight to the compelling need for the facility, which was on a disused brownfield site in Preston. We've also got the Leveling Up Housing and Communities Committee announcing that it will be scrutinising the government's latest set of proposed planning changes, including its draft revisions to the National Planning Policy Framework. Clive Betts, the Labour MP who's chair of the committee, said that the government's consultation on reforms to national planning policy raises a series of issues into areas such as national development management policies and how they might affect the primacy of local plans, as well as questions around local housing need. Thanks, John. And of course, listeners can read more on all those stories at planningresource.co.uk. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. That's another fortnight summarised. Yes. We'll be back with a bonus edition next week when we take a deep dive into some of the changes to the system in the proposed MPPF revisions. Yes, and we'll be looking at the timetable for the introduction of some of those changes. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producer Hannah Holt from Haymarket Business Media and also Daisy Chaku from Rethink and thanks for listening. See you next week.